Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 275. Today's topic is Vietnam. So why are we talking about Vietnam? The answer is that Vietnam, the war in Vietnam, which lasted from the early 60s until the mid-70s, it reveals to us much about what the plutocracy is capable of. I could say it reveals to us much about what the United States is capable of, and that would be true, but we need to not confuse what the plutocracy does with what with the people of the United States. So the plutocracy is the ruling class. A plutocracy is a, a type of government where it's the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Whoever has the money calls the shots. And you can say with merit that the United States is more of a plutocracy than a democracy because money plays such a heavy role in our political decisions. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Big money calls the shots. We get into war time after time after time after time because big money, the big corporations and the very wealthy have something to gain from war in so many ways. Not only are they selling the weapons, but they stand to gain in the form of, like if you're McDonald's or Home Depot or Starbucks, you want to benefit from the ability of the United States to dominate those foreign markets and to set the rules. You don't want to have the people of Latin America to stand in the way of you opening up their markets to you. You want it to be no question that the people of the Latin America are going to open up their markets to your retail stores and to your mining concerns and to your oil drilling, etc. So the people in the plutocracy have multiple reasons to be in favor of war. For one thing, they're selling the weapons. For another thing, they profit when other countries open up their retail markets. For another thing, they profit when other companies open up their labor markets. And for another thing, they profit when the media, you know, the, the, the media loves war. It's a big dramatic thing. It draws people fearfully to their televisions, etc. Uh, it sells newspapers. So the people who own the media have always profited from war. For example, when leading up to the Iraq war, there was an overwhelming number of people who were shown on TV like MSNBC, an overwhelming number of people shown on that, that favored the war and a very, very few guests were opposed to the war. That's the political economy of the media. So we, we at the Climate Report are here to solve the problem of climate change. And if we're going to do that, we have to know what stands in our way. And one thing that stands in our way is the plutocracy. If the plutocracy is making all the decisions, and if they're strongly in favor of war, then we're going to keep on having war even though war is terrible for the climate in so many ways. So war is terrible for the climate in that there's a lot of carbon emissions. You know, when you're transporting 
people and cargo. It's not about how many miles to the gallon you're getting. It's about how many gallons to the mile. These big vehicles expend multiple gallons of fuel per mile when they're taking people to where they're going. Not only that, the manufacture of the weapons of war takes a whole lot of carbon. It takes a whole lot of carbon to just make the planes, let alone fly them. It takes a whole lot of carbon to make the ships and the submarines, let alone put them in the water and carry people and things places. Takes a whole lot of carbon to make all those Humvees that get four to eight miles to the gallon. Takes a whole lot of carbon to make the tanks, uh, let alone have the tanks deployed to the battlefield. And it's not just the participation in war that takes a whole lot of fuel, it's the exercises, the drills. Because for every hour that a pilot is in battle, there are many, many hours of practice. For every hour that a tank commander is in battle, there are many, many hours of practice. So war takes a whole lot of carbon. And preparation for war takes a whole lot of carbon. And manufacturing the hardware required for war takes a whole lot of carbon. And manufacturing the the fuel and the ordnance, the bombs for war takes a whole lot of carbon. So war has a whole lot to do with climate change. The Vietnam War has a whole lot to do with climate change. And uh, another thing that this, how this relates to climate change is that we are part of nature. When we carry on war, we are acting like we are not part of nature. But in fact, we have to live within nature. And if war goes far to destroy the natural world that we live in and depend on, then we need to take a hard look at how war impacts the natural world. We have to admit as human beings that we have the power to destroy nature in multiple ways. And the war in Vietnam illustrates that we have the willingness, or at least the plutocracy, has the willingness to destroy everything around us. And that includes chemical warfare. <gasps> Americans don't do chemical warfare, except when we have to. We were taught Americans don't do chemical warfare. If uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, uh, Barack Obama says that if Bashar al-Assad uses chemical weapons, then the United States is going to go in and kick some butt. He didn't say those words, but that's what he meant. We're going to draw a big red line. And if the Syrians use uh, chemical weapons, we're going to go, well, America uses chemical weapons. What do you think depleted, depleted uranium is? So depleted uranium is when they take the exhausted uranium from, uh, from plants, from nuclear plants. They use it in bombs because it's twice as heavy as the next best thing. It's a very heavy metal. So it's good for armor piercing and bunker piercing. It's also radioactive. It is a chemical weapon. So wherever depleted uranium is used, which is everywhere we go to war, whenever depleted uranium is used, cancer rates go up and people have to live with that for decades. So we use chemical warfare 
Uh, we used chemical warfare in Vietnam. We used uh, a heavy chemical called Agent Orange for, uh, for to deforest because, hey, we, ha we, we, had to, we had to take out their forests so that they wouldn't have a place to hide, as if we had the right to, to, to destroy their forests. But we did. So the plutocracy has the willingness to use chemical warfare. The plutocracy has the willingness to practice deforestation, even though that's terrible for the climate, not, uh, not to mention terrible for the people who are exposed to this chemical called dioxin. Also, we used dioxin to destroy crops. We used dioxin to destroy crops. We used bombs to destroy crops. We used bulldozers to destroy crops. It's a straight up war crime, but it happened and you're not going to find it in very many places. So that's why we have to talk about it because this is non-commercial media. Commercial media is not going to talk about this. So let's talk more about Vietnam. We're going to be drawing from uh, Noam Chomsky's book called Year 501. I've, I've read about 15 of Noam Chomsky's books. Year 501 is one of the best. So I highly recommend it. So let's just start reading and go from there. It says, in the country of Vietnam, as opposed to Indochina, which would include Laos and Cambodia. So they're talking about the Indochina Wars. And Indochina refers not only to Vietnam, but also to Laos and Cambodia. It says, in Vietnam proper, the death toll may have passed three million. So pause. Three million people. Three million people. In Vietnam, three million people died. That's four times the population of Louisville. What gives us the right to kill three million people? Maybe we didn't have the right to kill three million people, but we did because we could. And most average Americans were against the war. They didn't just think it was a strategic blunder. They thought it was fundamentally wrong and immoral but you're not going to hear that on the commercial media. Continuing to read, in an article entitled Studies Show Vietnam Raids Failed, Charles Moore observes that the CIA estimated deaths from bombing of the North at well over 30,000 by the year 1967. So in, just in the North, just in North Vietnam, the deaths were 30,000 by 1967, and this was heavily weighted with civilians. In other words, out of this 30,000, they were overwhelmingly civilians. Even if they had been all soldiers, we might think whether that's justified, but this is overwhelmingly civilians. And even today, when you have drone bombing, they want you to think that these bombs are targeted. They're targeted, <laughs> but you still have lots and lots and lots of civilian casualties. I've heard estimates of about nine to one in terms of innocent civilians killed versus the, the people that were supposedly enemy combatants. So I'll just go ahead and read several paragraphs and then come back to the beginning. 
Keep in mind that we're talking about Vietnam. This is Noam Chomsky's year 501. He says, crop destruction programs from 1961 have had a devastating impact, including aerial destruction by chemicals, ground operations to destroy orchards and dikes, and land clearing by giant tractors called Rome plows, that obliterated agricultural lands, often including extensive systems of paddy dikes and entire rural residential areas and farming hamlets, leaving the soil bare, gray, and lifeless, in the words of an official report cited by Arthur Westing, who compares the operations to the less efficient destruction of Carthage during the Punic Wars. The combined ecological, economic, and social consequences of the wartime defoliation, that means getting leaves off the trees, consequences of the wartime defoliation operations have been vast and will take several generations to reverse. In the empty landscapes of Vietnam, recovery will be long delayed, if possible at all, and there is no way to estimate the human effects of the chemical poison dioxin at levels of 300% to 400% greater than the average levels obtaining among exposed groups in North America. In the South, 9,000 out of 15,000 hamlets were damaged or destroyed, along with some 25 million acres of farmland and 12 million acres of forest. One and a half million cattle were killed, and the war left a million widows and some 800,000 orphans. In the north, that is North Vietnam, in the north, all six industrial cities were damaged, three razed to the ground, along with 28 of 30 provincial towns, 12 completely destroyed, 96 of 116 district towns, and 4,000 of some 5,800 communes. In other words, three out of six industrial cities in the north were, uh, well, all six were damaged. Three were razed to the ground. Six industrial cities, three were razed to the ground. Three industrial cities became a moonscape along with 28 of 30 provincial towns. In other words, 28 of 30 provincial towns were destroyed. 12 were completely destroyed. 96 of 116 district towns were damaged. And 4,000 of some 5,800 communes were damaged. 400,000 cattle were killed and over a million acres of farmland were damaged in the, in the North Vietnam. Much of the land is a moonscape where people live on the edge of famine with rice rations lower than those in Bangladesh. Reviewing the remaining effects, the Swedish Peace Research Institute, SIPRI, concludes that the ecological debilitation of such attacks is likely to be of long duration. Destruction of forests has increased the frequency of floods, and droughts and aggravated the impact of typhoons and war damage to dikes, some of which in the South were completely destroyed by U.S. 
bombardment, and other agricultural systems have yet to be repaired. The report notes that humanitarian and conservationist groups, particularly in the United States, have encountered official resistance and red tape when requesting their government's authorization to send assistance to Vietnam. Naturally enough, since the United States remains committed to ensure that its achievements are not threatened by recovery of the countries it destroyed. But the media doesn't report very much of this, and Chomsky writes, there is little hint of any of this um, or similar devastation in Laos and Cambodia in the mainstream U.S. media coverage. Rather, with remarkable uniformity and self-righteousness, the problems of reconstruction, hampered further by the natural catastrophes and continuing war, to which the United States has made what contribution it can, are attributed solely to communist brutality and ineptitude. In one of his sermons on human rights, President Carter explained that we owe to Vietnam no debt and have no responsibility to render it any assistance because the destruction was mutual. So let's look a little bit at the types of destruction that were caused by the United States military in the name of freedom. Now all this was justified because supposedly there was a war against communism, but what gives us the right to do all this? Plus, you know, the war against communism was overblown. Arguably the communist superpowers, which Vietnam was not, but arguably the communist superpowers were careful and defensive. They didn't want to get into a war with the United States, so arguably the weapons they had and the military posturing that they did was just defensive. But the destruction included aerial destruction by chemicals. That's chemical warfare. Dioxin is a highly toxic chemical. It's chemical warfare. Plus, we took out like just millions of acres, millions of acres of forest. What gives us the right to destroy millions of acres of forest? And it says here that that destruction is going to take generations to recover, if it ever will. Well, we're a couple of generations away from Vietnam, and there's a serious question as to whether, you know, what, what happens when you just take chemical, you know, chemical like dioxin and use it to destroy forests. What happens? The forests go away. Hey, guess what? We need our forests. And guess what? The people of uh, Vietnam need their crops, but it says crop destruction programs from 1961 had a devastating impact. Why are we destroying people's crops? Well, I can tell you it's a war crime for us to destroy people's crops. Not only that, but the ground operations are destroying orchards and dikes. So, you know, here's your orchard. You depend on this orchard for food, and the United States military comes in and destroys your orchard, and they destroy your dikes. So presumably dikes are used uh, either for irrigation or to maintain, you know, to hold back waters to, to keep it from flooding. So it took these people probably decades, if not hundreds of years, to build their agricultural systems. In comes the United States, and in 12 to 15 years, it's just all decimated and destroyed. 
says here we obliterated agricultural lands. How would you like for your farms to just be destroyed because somebody with bigger guns comes in and decides to do it? How would we feel if our Kentucky croplands were just destroyed by an invading army that we had never bothered and never offended? It says these crop destruction programs had a devastating impact on entire rural residential areas. So not just the dikes, not just the lands, not just the orchard, not just the crops, but entire rural residential areas and farming hamlets. It left the soil bare, gray, and lifeless. You bet bombs and bulldozers tend to leave the soil bare, gray, and lifeless. So it says the combined impact of these operations uh, on the ecology, on the economy, on the social structure had consequences that, was, um, that will take generations to reverse. What gives us the, the right to destroy their agricultural lands, their forests, their crops, their villages? says 9,000 out of 15,000 hamlets were damaged or destroyed. That's a majority of the hamlets. 25 million acres of farmland were destroyed. 12 million acres of forest were destroyed. 12 million acres. 25 million acres of farmland destroyed. The war left a million widows. So a million women became widows. A million women lost their husbands, 800,000 orphans, so 800,000 children lost their parents. If somebody's an orphan, it's because they've lost both parents. So 800,000 children lost both their parents. Specifically in the north, all six industrial cities were damaged, and three were completely destroyed. So the north North Vietnam had six industrial cities, six were heavily damaged, three were completely destroyed. 28 of 30 provincial towns were damaged and 12 of those were completely destroyed. 96 out of 100 district towns, 96 out of 116 district towns were destroyed. 4,000 of some 5,800 communes were destroyed. 400,000 cattle were killed. 400,000 cattle were killed. And the government prevented groups from the U.S. and around the world, prevented them from sending aid after the war was over. So the war is over and the government prevents these groups from sending aid to our former enemy. So 400,000 cattle were killed just in the north. A million and a half uh, cattle were killed in the south. Hey, why are we bombing the south? Why are we killing cattle in the south? The south was supposed to be our ally And that's why we've been told lies about Vietnam. Our attack against the South was a lot heavier than our attack against the North. 
So we've been told fairy tales about how, you know, we were defending South Vietnam against communist aggression coming from the North. If we were defending South Vietnam, we wouldn't have bombed more in South Vietnam than in the North. It says here about the North Vietnam, much of the land is a moonscape where people live at the edge of famine with rice rations lower than those in Bangladesh. So people live on the edge of famine because of our bombing, because of our illegal war of aggression. So specifically speaking of the environmental effects, the destruction of forests has increased the frequency of floods and droughts and the aggravated impact of typhoons. So uh, more floods, more droughts, and the typhoons have a greater impact. And the war damage to dikes, some of which in the south were completely destroyed by U.S. bombardment, uh, has yet to be repaired. So these dikes have yet to be repaired. This was written in the mid-80s, so about 10 years after the war. So I've got a few minutes left. Let me leave you with some things to think about. So I've been going through this thing about Vietnam because, you know, it, it left a strong impression on me. Uh, I grew up in the mid, I, I was born in 63. So the war was kind of getting underway when I was born. And I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the war was going on, old enough to remember kind of debating with my um, friends whether the war should go on. And uh, I was kind of an upper middle class person. And I, I remember a friend who was kind of a working class person. I was for the war and he was against the war. And the reason I was for the war is because, well, the United States has never lost a war. And he kept saying, well, but all those people dying, you know, all those people dying. So his heart was in the right place and his mind was in the right place. My mind and heart were in the wrong place because I'd been, I was only like 10 years old and I was being influenced by all the wrong people. But Vietnam is only one instance of a war of aggression. Uh, you know, the United States has done nothing but wars of aggression since 1945. Let's set aside the question of whether World War II was justified. It was at some level, but then let's just leave that aside. It's been, what, 75 years since the end of World War II, and the United States has, has done nothing but wars of aggression and regime change ever since 1945, because the U.S. is an empire. The U.S. has always been an empire, especially today. If there's never been an, if, if, there's, if the U.S. is not an empire, then there has never been an empire. And yet we're taught to think of it as this big democracy. So it's maybe a little of both. It's, uh, it's partly an empire and partly a democracy, but it's much more of an empire than most people imagine. It's certainly more of an empire than we are taught, and it's more of an empire than we are led to believe. So I've wanted to talk about Vietnam because I wanted to show you what the plutocracy is capable of. We are not going to win this battle against climate change unless we deal with the plutocracy.
We're not going to win this battle against climate change unless we make sure that the plutocracy is not a plutocracy anymore. Whatever it takes, we have to push the plutocracy out of power. And the only way to do that is to make sure we get a democracy back. Actually, we never had a democracy to begin with, but now's the time to show that we are a democracy and we make the decisions. And if we don't do that, then they're going to do, you know, they're going to then they're going to devastate our country the same way they devastated Vietnam. Mark my word. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Come back soon. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 276. Today's topic is the costs of war. So what's the, what are we talking about here? Why are we taking time to talk about the costs of war? What is it that is so important about this subject that we should take 30 minutes to talk about it? And the answer to that is that the purpose of the climate report is to solve the problem of climate change, whatever that may involve, wherever that journey may lead us, we want to solve this problem. Uh, the problem of climate change is going to require lots, of, it, it's, it's all hands on deck. It's going to require the attention of lots of people. Maybe not everybody, but it's going to take the attention of lots of people. It's going to take the time of lots of people. It's going to take the money of lots of people. And so we need to have a reserve of time, attention, money, and relevant knowledge so that we have the resources and the wherewithal to dedicate to solving the problem of climate change. Now, there are those who want you to think that this is a simple problem and that all you have to do is buy a solar panel. All you have to do is buy an electric car. All you have to do is make sure that you buy windmills for your community. All you have to do is support a government program that says we need a state-of-the-art electric grid. All you have to do is to think that Americans need to reach deep down inside themselves and pull out all of that ambition and that matchless American innovation. What I'm doing is quoting from Biden's climate plan. But solving the problem of climate change is not as simple as developing new technologies. Solving the problem of climate change is not as simple as buying solar panels. It's not as simple as driving less. It's not as simple as eating vegan, if that's your thing. Solving the problem of climate change is a big problem. It's a complicated problem. And it's something to where we need the cooperation and support of the vast majority of people. 
and therefore we need to make sure that the vast majority of people are not consumed with distractions. And war and all that it involves is a big, huge, large, gigantic distraction from what we need to be doing. It's a big, huge distraction from what we need to be thinking about. It's a big, huge distraction from how we need to be spending money. It's a big, huge distraction from how we need to be scaling down entire industries. Entire industries can and should be eliminated, but they won't be eliminated as long as we are obsessed with war. And you may not be obsessed with war, but your culture is. You may not be obsessed with war, but our government is. You may not be obsessed with war, but the business world, uh, as, as exemplified by Wall Street, is obsessed with war. The media is obsessed with war. So you might not personally be obsessed with war, but we have all of these elements of our economy, all of these elements of our society, including the business world, because lots of people make a profit from war. We have uh, the media, because war gets viewers, and war sells papers. And government is obsessed with war, because the people in our government that are elected they're in office because the war machine put them there. The war machine put our Congress people in office, Republicans and Democrats alike. That's why Republicans and Democrats alike uh, vote overwhelmingly in favor of the latest uh, National Defense Authorization Act to the tune of $740 billion bipartisan consensus and it is an expensive obsession 740 billion dollars currently so they don't have money for health care but they have money to spend 740 billion dollars on the war machine don't have money to support people with direct cash payments in the form of a universal basic income but they have money for the war machine don't have money to solve the problem of homelessness but we have money for the war machine don't even have money for homeless veterans, but we have money for the war machine. Don't have money that we need to have for wounded veterans, but we have more money to make more war. We don't have the money to be properly prepared for the COVID epidemic, but we have money to spend on the weapons of war. So I've been going through my handy-dandy numbered list. Item number two is the cost of war, $740 billion annually, and that's just the Pentagon budget. If you include all costs, you know, all out-of-pocket costs of war, then it's more like over a trillion dollars. A trillion is a thousand billion. So it's well over a trillion dollars is the true out-of-pocket cost for war, plus you know, the, the Pentagon lost $21 trillion. This was reported in Forbes 
Lee Camp has a good analysis of this situation. But when your accounting system is, is worth a crap, is, you're, when your accounting system is not worth a crap, then you can lose $21 trillion. And who, you know, and who is going to challenge that? The Pentagon has never been successfully audited because it's, you know, there's no way to know. The chairman of defense said this a couple of years ago, said, you know, you just can't know what, uh, my people can't tell me how many people work for them or how much money they're spending. This is what the chairman of the Department of Defense, the defense secretary said a few years back. And there's abundant evidence of this. So part of the cost of war uh, is a completely unaccountable government. Item number three on my handy dandy uh, numbered list, we, when we count the cost of war, we have to count the, the, the pollution associated with the manufacture of all these weapons and equipment. So there was an article recently by Bill McKibben, famous environmentalist who was basically saying, the Pentagon has a positive role to play in the climate fight. And I'm thinking, Bill, you have fallen so far. You have fallen so far. But throughout the article, he was just talking about the emissions. So it's like not a big deal, the emissions. And I'm thinking the environmental cost of war or the environmental cost of a tank or a plane or a Humvee is not just a function of what comes out of the tailpipe. Two-thirds of the environmental cost of a car is associated with the manufacture and disposal of that car, not the useful lifetime of the car. I can assume that the same is true for tanks and planes. Two-thirds of the cost of something is associated with the manufacture and disposal of that thing and not so much the useful life. So when you look at the environmental cost and the climate impact of war, you have to look at the cost of manufacturing tanks, planes, fighter planes, cargo planes, drone bombers, personnel carriers, cargo trucks, Navy ships, all of these things are manufactured. And the greatest amount of the environmental cost is not during the useful life, but in the manufacture and disposal of that thing. Item number four on the costs of war is truth is the first casualty of war. So when we go to war, the first casualty is not a human being coming home in a body bag. The first casualty in war doesn't happen on the battlefield. The first casualty in war happens before the first shot is fired because war requires a whole lot of lies. So the lies are associated with the following things. We are told lies as to our reasons for getting into a war. In the Iraq war, it was weapons of mass destruction. That turned out to be a big lie. And then it was, oh, um, Saddam Hussein is affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Well, that was a big lie and they knew it. The reason we got into Vietnam supposedly was our ships were attacked in international waters off of the Gulf of Tonkin.
and that turned out to be a lie. We are lied to as to the progress of the war, how the war is going, when we will get out of the war, what it will take to end the war, and we are lied to as to why we are even there. So item number four, truth is the first casualty of war. Item number five in the costs of war, uh, I have a list here. It says we've been lied into every, every war. We were lied into Vietnam because we were attacked, supposedly attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. That turned out to be a lie. The defense secretary knew it at the time. Robert McNamara knew it at the time. We're lied as to why we got into Iraq, supposedly weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction. In fact, the phrase weapons of mass destruction was one of the leading phrases, most uttered phrases on television and in the print media during the year 2002 or possibly it was 2003, because that's when we got into the Iraq War. But after 9-11-2001, and the year following that, 9-11 was one of the most frequently mentioned phrases in the news. And then the following year, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction was one of the most frequently mentioned items in the news. And it turned out to be a big, fat lie, and they knew it. Colin Powell knew it was a lie. George W. Bush knew it was a lie. Dick Cheney knew it was a lie. So when we talk about the costs of war, it's not just the financial cost. It's not just the cost in terms of lives. It's the cost in terms of the truth. Truth is the first casualty of war. And so we're lied into wars and then like the war on terror. What is that even? What is, what is the war on terror? It's a war against a tactic. So as long as there's terrorism in the world, we're going to be at war with who knows who and who knows where, where what, who knows where. So item five, we've been lied into every war, lied into Vietnam, lied into Iraq, lied into Nicaragua. Nicaragua in the 80s, we were supporting the Contras. And there was a big pack of lies associated with the reason we were even there. The Sandinistas, which was the government of Nicaragua, they were always said to be Marxist and anti-democratic, and none of that was true. Or if there was some grain of truth in it, you have to say, what's the context? Are we going to murder people because of what they believe? Are we going to murder people because they're anti-democratic, even though the very regimes we're supporting in neighboring countries like El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras and Panama, Colombia, all of these are extremely anti-democratic regimes. So if you say the Sandinistas are anti-democratic once in a blue moon, what's the context? What's the big picture? What's a balanced view of this? And are we going to kill people because of false accusations that says they're more anti-democratic than their neighbors? So other instances where we've been lied into war, Guatemala, 1954, Supposedly, Jacobo Arbenz was a Marxist. He was allied with the Russians. That was never true. And even if he were, is that a reason to go to war on the country? Is that a reason to kill ultimately 200,000 people 
or at least to cause to be on the wrong side of a civil war that causes the death of over 100,000 people, probably closer to 200,000 people. We hear constant lies about Venezuela and why we should have sanctions on them and why we should have warships off the coast of Venezuela. We've had a constant stream of lies about Cuba in our lifetime. Item number six, another cost of war is individual liberties. So after 9-11, George W. Bush initiated the Patriot Act. We are still under the Patriot Act. It is a serious violation of our civil liberties. The Patriot Act is a, a serious hindrance upon our ability to speak against the government. They can falsely accuse people of terrorism and hold them without a trial, hold them without giving them representation by an attorney. So the costs of war has to include item number six, serious burdens on our individual liberties. Item number seven, another type of uh, lie that we're told in the context of war. We're told that we are, that the U.S. fights for democracy. So I have three examples uh, of just the opposite. So we're told that we're fighting for democracy, but the truth is just the opposite. Let's go to Iran in 1953. Uh, Mohammad Mossadegh was elected by the people of Iran to represent the interests of the people of Iran. Imagine that, that a you know, sovereign country should be able to elect its head of state in democratic elections. But in the early 50s, Mohammad Mossadegh was elected fair and square as prime minister of Iran. And then the CIA comes in, Kermit Roosevelt with a suitcase full of cash, pays off people, and within a few months or a year, they don't have a democracy anymore. They are, the democracy is replaced by the Shah of Iran who ruled brutally with an iron fist for 25 years. So we replaced a democracy with an autocratic government. Item number two on how the U.S. sometimes fights for just the opposite of democracy. Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, I told you a little bit about this before, but you know, 1954, they're saying, hey, that deal with Iran worked really well. So let's go do that again in Guatemala because we don't like, or rather, United Fruit Company doesn't like Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala. So, you know, since we uh, think more highly of United Fruit Company than we do the people of Guatemala, we're going to go in and eliminate their democracy. We're going to cause a little civil war. We're going to get Jacobo Arbenz out of office and replace him with somebody who is more obedient and subservient to United States corporate interests. Yet another example of how the U.S., our citizens are told how we're fighting for democracy, but in point of fact, we are just the opposite. We're fighting against democracy. And the third of these three items where we're fighting against democracy is Salvador Allende. Now, this was on, on September 11th, 1973. Salvador Allende 
is uh, he's, he, he, you know, ended up dying. Possibly he committed suicide. Possibly he died in gunfire. And uh, in, so in Chile, they had a popularly elected president. He was a medical doctor by the name of Salvador Allende. And, you know, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon, President Richard Nixon and his boy, Henry Kissinger, went to war, economically and otherwise, went to war against Chile. So Chile wants to have a democracy, but the United States doesn't want Chile to have a democracy because it doesn't suit our corporate interests. So yet again, the United States, we're told we're fighting for democracy, but we're fighting for anything but democracy. Item number eight on my handy-dandy numbered list of the costs of war is we are told that the U.S. stands for a rules-based international order. I love it when Barack Obama talks about a rules-based international order, or John Bolton talks about a rules-based international order, or Mike Pompeo talks about a rules-based international order, as if the United States in my lifetime has ever stood for a rules-based international order. It's like, if only, if only we were for a rules-based international order, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. But we don't stand for a rules-based international order. It's not the rule of law. It's the rule of force. So when the United States invaded, invaded Iraq in 2003, were we doing so because we were fighting for a rules-based international order? No, we are the primary threat to a rules-based international order. When we invaded Vietnam, were we standing for a rules-based international order? Or are we the world's primary threat to a rules-based international order? If we're interested in a rules-based international order, there's this thing called a, a treaty. And the treaty I'm thinking of is the Charter of the United Nations. The Charter of the United Nations, which we entered into in the late 1940s, says that it says, look guys, we've had two world wars in our lifetime. How about we stop this thing called war and let's have a treaty that's going to end wars. And let's say, you know, we're not going to use military force or the threat of force against the territorial sovereignty of any member nation. In other words, Iran is a member nation, so we're not going to use uh, force or the threat of force against Iran, because we're not going to do that, because we're going to avoid war. And we're not going to use force or the threat of force against Venezuela, because Venezuela is a member of the United Nations and we're trying to avoid war, so we're going to not do that. 
So that's what the United Nations Charter says, at least in part. It'd be great if we actually honored that because the United Nations Charter is an attempt, and a very good attempt, to establish a rules-based international order. But we violate the United Nations Charter every day. We violate the United Nations Charter every day before breakfast. Because the United States, such as it really is, not the rhetoric, but the reality, the reality of the United States is that we have no interest in a rules-based international order. The only international order we're interested in is the international order that says we're the boss and we're going to do what we want and we're always going to go to bat for United States corporate interests and we're going to use force if we have to to go to bat for our corporations. Item number nine on the costs of war, sanctions. We have to look at sanctions. Sanctions have to be included in the costs of war. Uh, sanction is like siege warfare. So I've heard that we have like, you know, that one-fourth of the people in the world live in a country in which they are subject to sanctions by the United States. And it's not hard to understand why if you look at, you know, we have sanctions on Russia, we have sanctions on Cuba, sanctions on Venezuela, we have sanctions on Syria. And a sanction is like an economic blockade. It says, you know, we're going to refuse to trade with this country and we're going to strongly encourage our allies to not trade with this country. That's what sanctions normally are. So, for example, in Venezuela, sanctions have caused the deaths of something like 40,000 people just in one year. This is, this is in one year. This goes back a couple of years, but the United Nations used a, an economist by the name of Jeffrey Sachs, very prestigious economist, who determined that the United States sanctions on Venezuela have caused the death of, are you ready, 40,000 people. Because when you do things like keep insulin from getting into the country, then people don't have their insulin, they die. So this is why sanctions are a war crime. Why do we have sanctions on Venezuela? Why do we have sanctions on, on Iran? In Iran, people die from cancer because you can't get anti-cancer drugs, at least some of them. You can't get in there. And so the doctor says, you know, I'd like to help you, but there's this drug that you really need and we can't get it to you because the United States has sanctions on us. Why do we do this? Well, the rhetoric, you have to separate the rhetoric from the reality. The rhetoric is, oh, we're going to make Iran, we're, we're doing a change of government. So, you know, the, the government of Iran, we don't like them. We don't think they're democratic. But really, it's the autocrats and the big companies that, that benefit when this kind of thing happens. The, last, the, the first people you hurt 
are the regular average people. And the last people you hurt are the ones that have real power. So when we look at the costs of war, we have to look at the costs of sanctions, which is blockades, which is siege warfare. It's illegal, it's immoral, it's criminal, it's unethical. So I've got a minute or two left. Let me leave you with something to think about. So I started off saying that, okay, climate change is a big deal. Solving this problem is not going to be easy. And the quicker we start solving it, the better off we'll be. The quicker we start solving the problem of climate change, the better we'll be in terms of the ecosystems around the world, the better we'll be in terms of the environmental pollution because climate change is just one symptom of a system and whole industries that put out a lot of environmental pollution. When we start solving the problem of climate change, which we have not done yet, when we start solving the problem of climate change, it'll start saving the lives of a lot of people around the world, and it will give a lot of people around the world peace and security against storms and droughts and floods. But in order to start seriously solving the problem of climate change, we have to end war. War is illegal, immoral, unethical, and completely unnecessary. That's all we have time for. Thanks for joining me. Come back soon.